This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Oscar Edmondson and I'm joined today by Katie Bulls and Kate Andrews. So last night, Keir Starmer faced his biggest rebellion yet as leader of the opposition when 56 of his MPs defied a three-line whip to vote in favour of a ceasefire in Gaza. Katie, can you take us through the fallout? Yes. So as you say, this is 56 Labour MPs who backed the SNP amendment. And Labour had tried to quell the rebellion by having uh, its own amendment, which doesn't go as far as saying a ceasefire, but, you know, talked about longer humanitarian pauses. And it was a way, I think, of trying to, to reduce the figure. I think you look at the number of Labour MPs who rebelled, but then I think more specifically, that's the number of front benches, um, because eight shadow front benches defied their leader to back the ceasefire in Gaza in the Commons vote. And I think speaking to figures in Labour ahead of the vote, so yesterday afternoon, they were saying, you know, it could be 10 to 15, and that was their concern. So I think clearly the whips and Keir Starmer and his team managed to reduce the number slightly. But you look at some of those who decided to vote and therefore have resigned as shadow ministers, such as, for example, Jess Phillips, Minister for Domestic Violence. She is one, I think, probably one of the best known figures to have decided to go over this. Um, but I think when you look at them all as a whole, what they tend to have in common is lots of people say, oh, it's the Corbynites versus Keir Starmer. I don't think that's what's happening here, even if there is an element where, you know, some on the left tend to speak out more on this issue. Jess Phillips is not seen as that. This is a lot of it. You look at the constituencies of the Labour politicians who've decided to quit their front bench rows to vote for a ceasefire. They have large Muslim communities in their constituencies. And I think that is a big factor. The pressure they've been facing, the fact that they don't want to fall out of their constituents over this. And also, I think uh, my understanding is Labour MPs in neighbouring constituencies were talking to each other and trying to make a decision together. So you didn't have one where, you know, your Labour MP next door makes a stand and you don't. I think that's how you got to the number you have. In terms of Keir Starmer's authority, well, as you say, Oscar, this is the biggest rebellion he has faced, I think, since being Labour leader. And given, you know, probably pre-Israel-Palestine conflicts and, and the attack by Hamas, it was often, you know, he has full control of his party. I think it's just a reminder that as with all political parties, there are some issues that run deep and you can, you know, change all the rules you want. You can oust MPs when they say certain things, but there will be some things which do just divide a party. Does it mean that he has lost his authority? Speaking to some of the MPs who were considering stepping down and those who are unhappy with the position, I'd, I think there is a feeling that Keir Starmer did do some things wrong. So there is a frustration amongst some shadow ministers that I've spoken to that Keir Starmer got on the wrong foot early on with that LBC interview, but he appeared to suggest Israel had the right to defend itself, free cutting off gas, water, electricity to Gaza. And I think they think that that meant already he was attracting lots of criticism from their voters and from Labour MPs and it was the wrong tone and he didn't know where to go with it. And he tried to get back on that, but it took him too long to do so. And I think they wonder, had he not done that, would he be in a better position now 
not to ignore the cause per se, but to be making that argument of why he doesn't believe in a ceasefire, why he doesn't believe it's in a realistic solution. They think that has damaged his ability to make that pitch. But you're also not in a world where these people are saying he's not fit to lead and so forth. I think the question too is, how long before these figures are allowed to return? The Labour Party is pretty small as a result of the 2019 election and you know how many seats they lost compared to where it would normally be. And therefore, if we're being completely frank, from the leadership's perspective, they don't have that many uh, people they want in lots of these positions. Um, and I think it would be quite, it would only be a huge surprise if some of these figures return in a few months' time, once they think, you know, things have calmed in a different effort. So I don't think there's going to be unrepairable tensions as a result of this vote. But it is just a reminder that Keir Starmer has not managed to keep his party united, despite being 20 points ahead, and despite all the authority that usually brings a leader, which does raise questions for some of the debates and issues that would come if you're in power and you don't have a 20-point lead, which one would presume would happen quite quickly. And Kate, what was what was your reaction to the vote last night? How, how do you think it makes things difficult for Keir Starmer? As Katie notes, it's it's tricky territory when the MPs that are taking a vote, which they know is going to lead to their resignation from the shadow cabinet, are not the MPs that are on the far right of the party. It does suggest genuine fractions within the Labour Party that are not down necessarily to the Corbyn years, but just down to, to viewing things a bit differently. I mean, there is a world where the government was delivered a huge blow yesterday over the Rwanda decision from the Supreme Court. And then in addition to that blow, Kiyosama gets to stand up and say, look, once again at how I've moved on from the Corbyn years, we will not justify any anti-Semitism in the party. And actually the situation looks quite good for the shadow Labour. And actually the situation looks quite good for the Labour leader. I don't think it's that simple because I I don't think that this vote was fundamentally about weeding out anti-Semitism. People are allowed legitimately to disagree with the position on a ceasefire in Gaza. And I think it is going to remind voters that it's not that the Labour Party is still living in the Corbyn years. It's that it remains fundamentally torn over certain aspects of foreign policy. And for Kiyosama to not to have had to make a lot of those big foreign policy decisions for the obvious reason of not being in power yet. I think there's a lot of pressure as people are thinking, gosh, I might vote for this guy. I might decide that actually in the next election, I'm going to vote Labour for the first time. They don't just want to know what the tax policy is. They don't just want to know what the NHS policy is. They want to know how this person is going to perform on the world stage. And if the party is going to be united on that front or in what direction they're going to lean. I think one of the reasons this is difficult for Kiyosama is for obvious reasons. He's wanted to avoid a lot of that. Don't give people anything to criticize. Just be the opposition. I think we're going to get more and more of those questions. What does Prime Minister Kiyosama look like? How does he handle his party? How does that translate to the world stage? It's very clear there's going to be a lot of opposition to the kinds of things he would like to do or the kinds of policy positions he would take. I mean, so far, Labour and the Tories on things like Ukraine, and now, you know, it certainly seems Israel and and Palestine too, they're pretty united. You can imagine there are going to be a lot of left-leaning voters who actually would like to see more distinction between the two. And I suppose just in terms of the immediate, if Fraser was on this podcast, he would be saying, I think his charm is more impressive than ever. That's been one of the things he's been arguing in a sense. He looks like he can hold a line. And I think the Labour leadership decided to actually discipline MPs, have a line on this in this vote, as opposed to what we had in the early stages, which seemed to be front benches can say what they like. I think that probably was the best of the options available to Keir Starmer. If Keir Starmer had let front benches vote how they wanted in this vote and there had been known, you know, consequences, and I think 
people such as myself would be saying that's not how you could operate in government. And also, if just before this vote had started calling for a ceasefire, regardless, I think, of the moral pros and cons and the debate that we, we could have about that, it would look as though he was just being pushed by his party into a position. So I think the perspective from some of those around Stam was this was the least worst option he had. And Kate, we also had the uh, Supreme Court ruling yesterday that the government's Rwanda plan is unlawful. Where are we at now with, with Rwanda? Is, is there a backup plan, a plan B emerging for, for the government? That's a good question, Oscar. Uh, the government is suggesting there is a plan B, although whether or not it actually exists, um, I think, is slightly more up for debate. Rishi Sunak did a late afternoon emergency press conference yesterday, which does seem to have quelled some of the disruption within the Tory party at the moment, where he essentially said that the plan B is to implement emergency domestic legislation, which is going to counteract bits of other treaties that would have made the Rwanda scheme illegal. And he also really emphasized it was going to show that this is the will, this is this is the des- the desire and the decision of the UK. And it was more or less come at us. You know, if you take issue with that and you bring us to court, he, he made clear, I will do what needs to be done. And the subtext of that is talking about the European Court of Human Rights. If a bigger body decides to come after the UK, let them try. I can understand why the supporters of the scheme like this rhetoric. I think the reality of that Supreme Court decision yesterday suggests that this is nowhere near a plan B. It was, first of all, the prime minister's language about how foreign courts won't stop this decision, I think was deeply misleading. I understand why they want to be able to say that it's foreign courts, but it wasn't. It's a domestic court that made this decision. And it did so not simply because the ECHR might take issue with it. It was made very clear that there are countless treaties that the UK has signed up to that would make possible refoulement of asylum seekers completely illegal. A lot of that has been copied into domestic legislation. Now, Rishi Sunak can look at that, but that doesn't change the international point. But perhaps one of the most interesting lines in the ruling was this about customary international law. Basically, this idea that refoulement is considered such an egregious act that even if you're not signed up to these treaties, in many cases, it could still be almost the common law of international law considered to be something that you're not allowed to do. The fact that the government has not taken into account and still refuses to take into account that they were going to put refugees seeking asylum on the same plane as perhaps other people who weren't in as much risk continues to be their problem. People like me would continue to say, you've been warned about this for a long time. You could have done something about this. The fact that they're still not talking about that, I, I, you know, I, I think they're just continuing to dig a hole. Planes are not going to be taking off by the end of the year now. They have a real political problem. Perhaps that explains part of this rhetoric, trying to blame foreign courts, trying to suggest that this is an issue of us versus them. In truth, it was now we discover, some of us suspected, but now we, we certainly have a ruling that says this was very bad legislation to begin with. It's not really something any country is going to be allowed to do in this way. They have to go back to the drawing board and they have to start figuring out how they're going to protect genuine asylum seekers. Yeah, I mean, clearly Rishi Stone is now in a political bind. And you look at his response yesterday, I think number 10, what looking at lots of options to various judgments. So they didn't know exactly what the judgment was going to be. The fact that you have a former Supreme Court justice today coming out saying uh, his emergency plan is constitutionally extraordinary and has warned the government against trying to change the facts, I think points to the fact there is no neat solution. And I was speaking to Vickers quite senior in government yesterday and they were saying that is the problem. There's no easy, there's no pretty solution at this point. 
everything is going to be messy. And you also have Suella Braverman, the former Home Secretary, out there with her own plan B, which is about uh, disapplying various treaties, including the ECHR. And that's going to put pressure on Rishi Sunak, whether it's an amendment or just um, you know, causing the party to listen to her. So I think there's a bumpy road ahead. Great. Well, thank you, Katie. Thank you, Kate. And thank you very much for listening.